When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This episode is first broadcast on the 18th of January 2021. You know what that means? It's exactly 150 years since one of the most extraordinary pieces of pageantry in modern European history. 150 years ago, on the 18th of January 1871, siege of Paris was raging just a few miles away. King Wilhelm I of Prussia was elevated to emperor. He was promoted to emperor. He was proclaimed emperor, not just anywhere, as you'll hear in this podcast, but in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles. That's like a a French person being promoted to emperor of the French sitting in the Palace of Westminster in London. Uh, This was the beginning. It was the start of the German Empire, the Second Reich, uh, as people call it. And the next 80 years would be one hell of a ride, i got to tell you. One hell of a ride. Uh, we're going to have a couple of podcasts on this. This is the first. We've got the very brilliant Katia Hoyer. She's a historian, and she is she has just written a superb uh, history of the German Empire, the rise and fall from 1871 to, to 1918. We got carried away talking about this. We talked so much about the, the birth of this empire that we actually, I need, she needs to come back on and talk about the rest of it. She's so awesome. We just uh, chatted away about this extraordinary sort of seismic shift in, in European uh, politics the political geography of Europe in the second half of the 19th century. If you are interested in 19th century history, we've got loads of programmes available on History Hit TV. And, and of course, if you're history teachers, that you're listening to this podcast now because of our lockdown learning shows. We've got another one out this week, by the way, Mark Morris talking about the Middle Ages. Quite broad, but you're going to love it. Um, remember, History Hit TV, the, aut- the, the January sale is still on. So if you use the code January, you get a month for free, and then you get the first three months after that for just for 80% off the ticket price. So it's pennies. We're talking cents. We're talking pennies. Um, So please do go and check that out. It's four months for less than the price of a cappuccino. Not that we're buying cappuccinos anymore, but it's four months for not very much money. Uh, And I hope it's of use to history educators out there, as well as people that just love history, which is everyone. Some some just don't know it yet. Please go to historyhit.tv. Use the code January. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy this episode with Katia Hoyer. Katia, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me on. How do we think about Germany in the early 19th century? Was it, I think, as Metternich once said of Italy, just a geographical expression or was it a more political entity? Well, it certainly didn't exist as a as a political entity, but um, the sort of pushing out of Napoleon, the collective effort that was made by the by the German people from 
from when the Prussian king basically called them to arms in, in 1812, created a sense of sort of togetherness and camaraderie, I think, that lasted as an, as an idea into the mid-19th century. And so there was certainly a sort of bottoms-up approach, if you will, from um, the people themselves uh, who pushed for further unification whilst the elites uh, sort of still resisted that. That's not to say that people already felt German in the sense that, that they would have said to somebody else they are German, they would have still said, I'm Bavarian or I'm a Rhinelander or I'm a Berliner. But nonetheless, that was a rising sentiment throughout the 19th century that there ought to be uh, some sort of political construct to represent the sort of burgeoning sense of of nationhood. I think we just need to have a quick dogleg there to talk about nationalism, that nationalism that you mentioned, because nowadays I think nationalism exists in the shadow of, of the 20th century, the mid-20th century, where for, for most of us it was, we regard it as a bad thing. But But back then it was a kind of progressive, almost... There was a proto. There was a proto democratic essence to it, wasn't there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The term nationalism has now uh, completely, well, not completely, but certainly partially shifted in in the meaning that it's uh, taken on. So, in the 19th century, it's very much a, a liberal movement. In fact, the, the largest political party when Germany begins to exist in 1871 calls itself the National Liberals, um, and this is maybe something that seems a bit odd to us today. But that's absolutely right. People saw uh, nationhood and, and nation states as sort of bastions against, you know, arbitrary royal rule in effect. So basically, people thought that if, if a nation state is, is there and it exists, um, it, it would sort of safeguard the rule of law um, against the monarch. Um, and from that respect, the, the, the same uh, was true for, for Germany. So where people lived, say, in Prussia, um, or in Bavaria, and, and were still under the under the sort of direct rule of their their monarchs. The idea was that if Germany could be made into a nation state with a constitution and the legal framework, that even the sort of elites would have to to stick to that. So, as you say, it's very much a sort of middle class uh, movement. The middle classes are growing in confidence uh, during this time, mainly due to industrialization and other sort of economic movements. And it's actually very much coming from from that social class that you know there's a push for for further unification and, and nationalism. So nationalism was a way of of taming mad kings and and dukes, but was there an ethnic dimension too? How did they define who should be in a nation state? Yeah, and that's very much the debate that people are the German people are having amongst themselves at this point in time. It seems that the most common sort of denominator that, that people name at the time as language. Um, and so you quite often get this expression as far as the German tongue is heard. Now, the problem with that is, of course, that uh, that throws up questions of, you know, which area should actually be in it, even though they're currently part of other territories. So, you know, look at Alsace as, as, a, as a perfect example of that sort of under, you know, French dominion, but largely German populated still at the time. It throws up questions about what to do with Austria, I mean, this sort of Prussian-Austrian uh, dualism that you see at the time is politically completely at odds with, you know, the sort of definition of Germans as as those that speak German. Um, and so, yes, there is a, is a sort of sense to try and work out how do you define um, a people? Is it by language? Is it by ethnicity? Is it by culture? There's by no means a sort of consensus on that, not even in the in the 19th century. But most people agree on the on the language factor rather than ethnicity at this point. That's beginning to shift a little bit later throughout um, the German Empire, that there's more and more of a sense of sort of being ethnically German, being the deciding factor. How, how do you know if you're ethnically German? 
it's a tricky thing to do, isn't it? I mean, in many ways, those uh, sort of societies that, that spring up in the 1890s, they're known as Völkisch societies or ethnic societies, claim a sort of universalism to that that just doesn't exist. So, you know, they sort of sit there and, and sing German songs and, and wear traditional uh, German garb, supposedly, whatever that means, um, and sort of pretend that there is a sort of common ethnic origin of, of all Germans, when, of course, historically, there's absolutely no grounds to to that. What I find fascinating about this period is you have all these kind of middle class nationalists clamming for integration, yet when unification comes, it feels like quite an old script. It feels like the Ancien Regime. It's the, it's the Prussian monarchy conquering people, isn't it? Is that, are there two contradictory forces at play here yeah there is a there is a bit of a of a conflict there but also this idea that sort of prussia conquered the rest is only partially um the case i mean it certainly is you know war is of course involved and that's a great part of my of my book as well to argue that it, it was sort of the wars that forged it but certainly the way that prussia gets the southern states on side so bavaria and baden and, and the sort of um areas south south of the of the river Main, which are catholic and very very reluctant to join any sort of union with with protestant prussia is not so much by force but it's actually by this idea that they're fighting side by side against the french once more so it's it's an interesting um mix between sort of pressurizing the smaller states into Prussia um, with the, for instance, war against Denmark, but then also almost coercing and, and convincing and cajoling with the with the larger states. And in the end, of course, the, the Franco-Prussian war is the sort of triggering fa- factor. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Otto von Bismarck, the architect of this entire project, the, the Prussian minister president, is quite acutely aware of the fact that this is also a people's movement um, and that he does have to sort of acknowledge that by, by setting up a, a parliament. And this is this is why you end up with this weird kind of construct whereby you've got a fairly strong monarchy and, and sort of a system at the top that is, is very much dominated by the elites. But then you've got the Reichstag, the German parliament, which is elected by universal male suffrage, which is still, um, you know, extraordinary at the time. Um, and that kind of, you know, conflicts and contrasts with each other for the next um, few decades, to the point where by 1914, they're very much at, at loggerheads and, and a stalemate ensues because the interests of both of those groups diverge so much. But let's go back right to the end of the Napoleonic Wars. We've got the Prussians left as a major player within the, the German-speaking world. Yes, um, certainly the largest one. And, and because basically at the um, Vienna Conference in 1815, um, so after Napoleon was beaten um, and when Europe was sort of redistributed, Prussia gains the Rhineland and that gives it, at the time it wasn't really, I don't think, understood just how much power it would give Prussia, but because they gain all of the the coal and iron ore deposits there, kind of all of the ingredients for industrialization, they sort of shoot ahead as an industrial power very, very quickly throughout the rest of that half of the 19th century um, and thereby effectively they, they become this super state. Okay, so what's the key moment here? Is it is it the showdown with Austria, it's kind of regional competitor. Yes, I mean, Austria had for a long, long time, due to the Austro-Hungarian em- Empire, been um, the sort of leading German power, if you will. Um, that begins to shift a little bit during the Napoleonic Wars, simply because of Prussia's contribution to that. So Prussia had prior to that um, gone through a, a number of military reforms and, and actually set up a military force. 
that was far more efficient than perhaps was you know justified by the size of the of the state uh, previously and because they fought side by side with britain the sort of prussia gained a new sort of prestige in, in europe particularly in the estimation of the of the british um after 1815 and so was beginning to be seen as one of the major european players but austria was still the more the more powerful one of the two but due to that acquisition of the Rhineland, effectively Prussia becomes a, an industrialized nation very, very quickly, whilst Austria remains fairly agrarian and and sort of um, almost anachronistic, I would argue, by by the mid mid sort of nineteenth century, and and is falling behind very very quickly. But that dualism had to be solved one way or another. Eventually, kind of who would take leadership and ownership of this kind of loose confederation of of German states that existed then. And so Prussia sort of took the opportunity to not only wage war against against Austria, um, but also to bridge that territory in the Rhineland that it had gained um, and its territory in the east by because they were split basically down the middle by waging and starting a war um, over this kind of complicated Schleswig-Holstein question that you mentioned um, earlier by attacking that area where basically Austria had had a staked interest. They triggered a war with Austria knowingly. And so effectively, it ended up in, in both of those conflicts, once and for all, establishing Prussian um, domination. So by the fact that they effectively annexed Schleswig and Holstein um, and beat Austria uh, very decisively and very quickly, um, that question was settled and you end up with this huge northern block, the, the North German Confederation that is dominated by, by Prussia and is sort of like a forerunner of the, of the Second Reich. Is there an alternative history here? I mean, why? Do, you know, I always think, why did Saxony and Bavaria, these ancient, once mighty states, why why was they not? Why were they not able to withstand pressure from from the north, from Prussia? Yeah, I mean, it's an economic thing for one thing. So the smaller states are certainly feeling, you know, the Prussian sort of domination and, and threat here, and they know that by the way that Bismarck had, you know, what he'd done effectively to Schleswig and Holstein. That if you're one of the smaller states, then um, you know you've pretty much got a choice. You can either align yourself with the Southern Bloc and and hope that that will remain free of Prussian control, or go with Prussia. But sort of staying by themselves for the smaller states was was not really an option anymore. Saxony is an interesting example because basically Prussia argued in 1815 they wanted the whole of it annexed to itself and it was only due to the intervention of of the other foreign powers that that didn't happen. But it did get partitioned. And Prussia basically ended up getting parts of it. And so as a result of that, Saxony was severely weakened. Bavaria is a bit of a separate case since since they are basically quite a large um, and populous state themselves. And as you say, a, a sort of long-standing European power. Um, and so Bismarck knows perfectly well you don't wage war against them, because if you do that, they're, ne- they're never going to integrate into this new pan-German state. So it has to be done voluntarily and hence why there's this kind of option to wage war against others seems the better way to do it but even after they defeated France in the Franco-Prussian war and Bismarck sort of sits down with them in, in 1870 once once the French defeat is on the horizon and tries to negotiate a, a unification with them Ludwig the Bavarian king is still very very reluctant to, to join in the end Bismarck resorts to writing a letter himself pretending it's from Ludwig and sends it to the to the Prussian king. And that letter basically says, yes, fine, I'll, I'll join the union. Um, and to keep Ludwig quiet and, and basically make sure that he doesn't uh, reveal that this letter was actually written by Bismarck, uh, he bribes him. 
And that's basically the way that that worked in the end. He was sort of half convinced that you ought to join uh, due to the Franco-Prussian war, but not quite. And there's Bismarck's bribe in the end and Bismarck's conniving that gets the Bavarians on side. And you see that to this day, there's a, there's a strong separatist sort of movement in Bavaria still now and certainly a very, very strong sort of local identity. Yeah, you mentioned industry there. And I just want to pause before we talk about the famous Franco, Franco-Prussian war or, of course, the big guy, the big guy Bismarck himself. And I want to ask about technology. As I'm talking to you, I'm just wondering, like, how important is the industrial transformation of the 19th century to the building of a super state? You know, it's, it's not an accident that, like, Russia... The US, Germany come in, their cohesion is facilitated by, by technology, isn't it? By railways and iron. I mean, it, if you think of Bismarck's vast Prussian army armed with its super accurate rifles that you know, won those stunning victories over the Austrians, does the German superstate owe a lot to technology? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And Germany is is naturally in a position to exploit that very well. So you've got these sort of large flat plains in the in the north that are almost completely flat. So this allows, for instance, very quick railway building from um, the, the Prussian Rhineland over to to the sort of Prussian heartlands in the east very, very easily. Equally from the way you've basically got the resources in the in the Rhineland and in the Ruhr to build railway tracks from there to the to the ports in the north, uh, to Hamburg and, and to uh, Wilhelmshaven, for example, and those kind of big port towns. Uh, that's also very straightforward. Um, and so this allows very, very easy trade routes um, and links between uh, where the resources are and where the, where the consumers and where the workers are. Um, and so you begin to see that even before unification, that in this sort of North German sphere of influence that Bismarck had built up, um, the, the forces of industrialization are at work. And that links back to what we were saying earlier about the, the middle classes pushing for unification. They are benefiting from that hugely. They're gaining vast amounts of money um, due to these kind of industrial sort of empires that they build out for themselves. And they want unification. They want common currencies um, or a common currency. They want a common market. They want a common banking system so that they can basically trade across the German lands very easily and, and move resources and people and goods um, across more easily. So the economic side is certainly a, a very, very strong factor in not only the unification process, but also why Germany ends up being a a sort of European superpower pretty much straight away after it unified. Yeah, and I guess the attempt to turn to Austria or, or the sort of the sprawling Habsburg lands into a cohesive state was quite hamstrung by its geography. Yes, I think that's a, a, a key point. Bismarck himself always argued it was also a, a cultural thing. So when he was still pushed on the fact that whether this kind of greater Germany, this gross Deutschland solution with Austria in it, um, wouldn't be the way forward. He is uh, supposed to have said something along the lines of he doesn't want to shackle his trim Prussian ship to the to the kind of sinking <laughs> old and and uh, trundling Austrian one, um, because he sees it as a you know not not just um, economically but also culturally and, and otherwise as an old and aging power that that's on on the decline. Um, that's partially to do with the fact, as you said, that it's a very sprawling um, territory. Um, also, access to the seas is, of course, very tricky for, for Austria, hence why all of the, the struggles in the Balkans to, to sort of get access to, to trade links and trade routes. But also because um, it had existed for such a long time, its structures had simply begun to sort of grind down and, and bureaucracy was a, was a big issue, whereas Prussia was seen as a sort of new, modern and, and more efficient, if you will, um, you know, to use, to use the old cliche, um, sort of more efficient power with, with a 
kind of Protestant work ethic to match, as, as Bismarck himself certainly would have argued. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've got Katja Hoyer on talking about the German Empire. More after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes. And you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Right, Katia, we've tiptoed around Bismarck for long enough. Is this an example of old-fashioned great man theory of history? Are we, are we watching one man bend history with his ambition, his will? I mean, would this have happened without this giant of a statesman? He certainly made it happen in 1871. Um, it's an interesting fact that Bismarck himself still said in 1868 that he doesn't think that German or didn't think that German unification was possible within this century. So he actually still said, you know, over 30 years before the end of that century that he didn't think it was possible. And it's the it's when the opportunity opens itself to have another war against France and also to make it so that the French would attack rather than Germany attacking, which is, is crucial. It's this defensive nationalism that he uses that Bismarck himself grasps the uh, opportunity against the expressed wishes of his of his king. Uh, Willem I, who's very, very reluctant and sceptical about the whole thing. So yes, I do think there there is still a, an example here of, of one person, one individual having a huge amount of influence over the way that history developed in this case. Uh, I mean, there had been Franco-Prussian tensions before, and without those, um, you know, Bismarck would have had very little room to to manoeuvre. 
but for him to then go in uh, with this sort of infamous episode of the of the Ems telegram and provoke that war himself by his own words with his own uh, pen, if you will, is an example of of his own actions uh, triggering a huge chain of of events that you know lead to even even bigger developments afterwards. Yeah, talk me through. It's complicated, isn't it? Talk me through how the bellicose French Emperor Napoleon III, who was Napoleon's nephew, Napoleon's first nephew, I think, uh, how Bismarck managed to sort of trick him into declaring the war that the French thought they wanted, but actually they seriously did not want. I mean, it should perhaps be said that Bismarck knew Napoleon III very well. He'd been posted to Paris as the as the Prussian envoy prior to unification, and there he met Napoleon and spent a lot of Napoleon III, that is, and spent a lot of um, time with him. So he knew him psychologically. He knew the French very well and knew sort of what he needed to do to to trigger sort of emotional backlash to to actions from from Prussia. Nonetheless, having said that, he did need a specific thing to happen for that to work. And so what happened was that the, the Spanish um, throne became vacant and there were various different candidates for that. And one of the people that came into question was a German candidate. And so whilst he didn't have a particularly strong claim to the throne and the Hohenzollern family, including Wilhelm, King of Prussia said, actually, no, that's probably not such a good idea. Um, because he knew, of course, that the French would, the very last thing that they wanted would have been to, to be surrounded by Hohenzollern monarchies. Despite all of that, Bismarck starts his little sort of intrigues and, and encourages the Hohenzollern prince to uh, make a claim for that for that throne. Not in, you know, in the full expectations that that would fail, but he knew just how much the, the French would respond to that and how many uh, anxieties that, you know, that would trigger. And so this pushed the French in a situation where they basically had to say, you know, do this and, and we will respond to that. Um, and so one thing effectively led to another. In the end, the French set, sent their ambassador Benedetti over to Prussia to try and resolve the situation. And Willem himself was perfectly happy to, to resolve that situation and tell the ambassador that he had no designs to put Hohenzollern on that throne and go home and, and be safe sort of thing. And he does all of that, talks to Benedetti, and then gives the transcript of that conversation to Bismarck to refine. And because Bismarck was very, very good with words and, and a very experienced diplomat, you know, he gives it to Bismarck to sort out. Instead of smoothing out the words and making them more diplomatic, uh, Bismarck sharpens the, the wording of that telegram um, significantly and basically makes it look as if the king had just flipp flippantly dismissed Benedetti out of hand and then sends that telegram back to France and not only back to the, to the diplomats who maybe could have buried it somewhere and <laughs> kind of tried to ignore it, but he sent it to the French press as well so it got released immediately and he did all of that on Bastille Day so <laughs> uh, it couldn't get any more provocative and Bismarck knew perfectly well what he was doing there and at that point it was out with the French public um, it was out on Bastille Day it was an open sort of slap in the face if you will and Napoleon III had no choice he was internally under a lot of pressure in any case so there, there had been republican movements threatening the, the monarchy in France in any case and he saw this as the only way out to, to save himself and his monarchy in France and so this provoked the, the Franco-Prussian war and war was declared importantly by France on Prussia. The Prussian army performs brilliantly certainly initially anyway in the sort of conventional period of the campaign is, is Bismarck responsible for that excellence as well? I would argue, and I don't think that's overly controversial, that the French were never in a position to, to win that war. They were just completely outnumbered. Um, they had this sort of almost 
I would say, paranoia about Germany having two things for every one thing that they had. Um, so this basically was sort of the rule of thumb that the, the French had applied previously. Um, this goes for people, resources, military, everything. And so they were simply outnumbered and, and it was difficult to see how they how they could have won that war. The reason why it's very quick and decisive is not due to Bismarck. Absolutely not. Bismarck was not, um, despite the fact that he wore military uniforms in public with, with a passion, he was not a great military thinker or military man. The man that did mark, make his mark here is Helmut Moltke, the elder, as he is known, the uncle of the of his perhaps more more famous or more infamous uh, nephew, Helmut von Molke, um, confusingly as well, <laughs> who will lead Germany into the First World War. But Helmut von Molke, the elder, was a great strategic thinker and, and also a moderniser in terms of the armed forces. So one of the things, for instance, that he introduced was was an idea of, of flexibility within the command structure. So that commanders lower down the the chain basically were able to to take the initiative as and when they they saw the need to and and were able to lead wars much more flexibly, if you will. So that's certainly one of the reasons, but also just the sheer fact that that Germany just had an overbearing force at this point collectively, as as all of the German states pulled together, certainly played the the key role. I would argue. Yeah, the second phase of the war, the one that gets overlooked. I mean, that gives Bismarck a nightmare, doesn't it? As the French people rise up in a kind of popular mobilization that. So it very much presages the wars of the the people's wars of the 20th century. Yeah, and also the the way that that Paris ended up kind of under siege almost, and the and the bombardments that happened there. So people, for, I mean, because the Franco-Prussian War is such a uh, kind of short and and comparatively uh, localized war when we when we compare it to the First World War. People often forget that, you know, there was also horrible suffering involved in that and, and also atrocities that were committed there. People also often forget the resilience that the that the French people showed in fighting back, something that, that gravely annoyed Bismarck and why he in the end sort of, you know, ordered the, the scaling up of the bombardment of, of Paris. But yes, that's certainly an element in it. Bismarck did, however, know that even if the war drags on a little bit longer, the sort of nationalist sentiment that would ensue from the feeling that people were involved in this war emotionally and, and physically would help him forge that German state later. So the, the more that German people felt that they had to sort of rally together and, and fight really hard against this, this sort of hated enemy um, and, and traditional enemy, this might even call it a hereditary enemy, the French. Um, he was sort of saying that that would be a perpetual thing. And I think so the drawing out of the war into the latter phases was not necessarily politically a, a bad thing as far as Bismarck was concerned. I guess in the short term, but... Surely in the long term, creation of a savage enmity between the Germans and French uh, it was not great. The relationship by the side of the Rhine would poison European and world politics for generations. That's absolutely right. And Bismarck was acutely aware of that. So when they had won the war and, and there, was a, there was a huge nationalist outcry there about annexing um, Alsace and, and Lorraine, the two provinces, French provinces, Bismarck urged caution. He actually said that he doesn't think that that's a good idea, simply because he knew that this would perpetuate this conflict with, with France forever. Like I said, he knew the French very well. And he argued even then that this would, would create a sort of revanchism um, movement in France that would never die down and it would never lead to normalisation between the two nations. So he argued it's not worth it over the over the Germans that lived in, in Alsace um, to risk that sort of you know, European stability that he would seek to to build after the war. Um, and so he himself was very, very aware of that. But equally, once 
nationalist outpouring was so great that he had to go with it and and basically ruthlessly annex um, Elsa and Lorraine. He accepted that the French would be an, an enemy for a long time um, and was trying to build a European complex network of European alliances that would isolate France and allow Prussia to be um, and Germany basically under Prussian leadership to be accepted as a as a power by the other nations um, and but without French consent, if you will. So Bismarck is quite quite aware of that problem. Yeah, was it? I always remember was it Bismarck who advised Wilhelm II never let Russia drift back towards a French alliance, keep France isolated. Yes, although although you would have done well, perhaps. I mean, the, the main thing that people here always argue about is the is the reinsurance um, treaty with Russia that, that Germany had signed with Russia um, about not going to war with each other, which which Wilhelm let lapse. But in fairness to Wilhelm and Bismarck's successor as, as Chancellor Caprivi, um, Wilhelm never disclosed. Uh, sorry, Bismarck never disclosed the fact that he had actually made that treaty with Russia. It was so secret because Austria wasn't supposed to find out about it. Um, that he hadn't even bothered telling uh, sort of key people at, at court that. Um, and so Caprivi, as his successor, effectively found out when it was almost too late and there was no chance to, to get that back. So in many ways, um, Bismarck perhaps could have helped to stabilise the, the legacy of his own reign to some extent, certainly more than, than he did end up doing. Katia, I can't believe I'm taking so much of your time. We're only really at the beginning here because uh, we've got to the founding moment, the birth of Germany in France, in Versailles. Yeah, absolutely. So when this Franco-Prussian war is, is won and Bismarck realises full well that the uh, German states will only rally together and, and hand over a sort of German crown to to Wilhelm, the, the Prussian king, if he can use that moment of, of glory, of victory, of the sort of basking in the nationalist aftermath of the of the war. And so he decides that the best venue to exploit that it's not in Germany, not anywhere in the German lands, because that would, would have given whichever state he had chosen um, a sort of upper hand in the unification process. So it had to be a place outside of Germany. And what better place to choose than the, the very heart of the French nation, if you will, the, the Palace of Versailles. The other thing was that the Palace of Versailles itself in the Hall of Mirrors has got a huge sort of ceiling painting on there which glorifies the sort of annexation of German lands by previous French kings. Um, and so in many ways, Bismarck, you know, that irony didn't escape Bismarck, that they were sat there sort of under um, anti-German, you know, seeding paintings and, and celebrating the, the making of the German nation right at the heart of the of the French. And the ceremony in itself is, is quite an interesting one because it was largely attended by, by military um, personnel and, of course, by the, by the German aristocracy collectively, by the German princes. Um, who'd all come together. But, you know, what we were saying earlier about it being also a people's movement, there's no sign of that at the at the proclamation at, at Versailles. People are gathered outside the palace, but again, that's, that's Prussian troops and, and troops representative of the other uh, German states. But it's entirely a military show um, and you won't find civilians anywhere in sight. And that's quite an interesting element of that. Bismarck himself wears uniform as well on, on the occasion. So there's no sense that a civilian sort of construct that's being created here. It's all very much a, a show of military and aristocratic power. And again, Bismarck deliberately does that in the hope that it would reassure the collective German aristocracy that he was not trying to build a, a sort of republic that would that would kick them all out of power, um, but that he was in fact trying to set up a, a state that would ensure their power into the future. I mean, it's been a very successful unification, hasn't it? I mean, it survived fascism, catastrophic defeat, partition, occupation, and yet Germany 
a version of Germany in Jaws. I mean, what happened in the decades that followed the founding that helped create such firm foundations? Um, I think one of the it's, it's both positive and negative collective experiences. I think that that forged Germany together, so that you know sort of stayed together for such a long time. I think on the positive side, the experience of what Germans can achieve together economically, for example, has certainly played a huge role. So there's a, an immense amount of pride in um, industry in in companies such as Siemens and AEG and BASF and all of those kind of economic giants that are beginning to to be set up in the late 19th century. And also the the progress that is made with it, so the technological advances that are being sort of uncovered at the time, all of this plays into this kind of um, ideology that collectively together Germans can can sort of achieve great things. And I think that was also, you know, part of the arrogance that ensued from that also was what, what led to the belief in, in victory in 1914. And then on the on the other side, and I think perhaps the more powerful side, you know, you were saying despite the two despite the two wars they they stuck together i think it's because of them i think the first world war certainly works as a as a sort of or catastrophe if you will you know of the of the german reich and that all germans go through that together experience defeat and humiliation and catastrophe and death together and camaraderie as well um which i think plays a huge role in molding the nation together because it, it creates a sense of you know, we've done this together and then we've gone through all of that together. It's interesting that when the French tried to incite a partition in Germany after the, the First World War, at the end of the First World War, thinking that this is surely the moment when the Catholic Rhineland and the Catholic Southern states, who had long held their suspicions about German unity, might be persuaded to, to just break off and form their own uh, countries. And that's very, very quickly shot down by those regions, despite the fact that they'd kind of despised Protestant overlordship over them for so long. So I think the, the catastrophes of both of those wars certainly play, play a huge role as well in moulding the German people together. But what about the years that followed the founding moment? What happened to unify disparate parts of this new Germany? Well, I think uh, under Bismarck, certainly, the uh, Bismarck did a very clever thing in that he realised that if Germans are fighting in a conflict with something or someone, and they, they'll sort of rally together and, and that will create a sense of unity. And he was acutely aware that you don't perpetrate this conflict externally because of Germany's kind of rather um, dangerous position in the centre of Europe and, and being surrounded by, by foreign powers. And so he decided to perpetuate that conflict internally. So he picked on one enemy after another, starting with um, the Catholics, for example, um, in, this, in a sort of culture camp movement against them, um, which was supposed to rally all the Protestants together. Then he ditched that, got the Catholics back on board against the socialists and made them uh, an enemy. And he called all of these groups Reichsfeinde, enemies of the state, you know, and, and sort of the, this idea that Germany was still at war, still in conflict with someone um certainly helped rally the the people together wilhelm absolutely wilhelm the second that is absolutely despised the idea when he came into power in 1888 um of germans sort of fighting each other and had this sort of somewhat naive idea that that he would be the focal point and he would be the sort of inspiration for everyone to embrace their germanness and so that that conflict had to be perpetuated externally as opposed to internally and so he not only started building an, an overseas empire of sorts, um, it was the third largest by the time that Germany um, gets to 1914, but he also perpetuates the conflict by uh, creating a certain um, degree of 
competitiveness and, and animosity towards uh, Britain, for example, in the in the naval race, um, but also against the French when he's when he's stoking up problems in Morocco and elsewhere. And so this idea that Germans would be rallied together in the face of conflict, I think, is a is a pervading one throughout that entire throughout the entire existence of the Second Reich. Well, look, there's so much to talk about here. That we've only really done the birth of the Reich. Um, come back on. Uh, let's talk about its adolescence, its midlife crisis, and its uh, full-blown, uh, difficult old age. Tell us all about the book. Yeah, so the book's called Blood and Iron, after Bismarck's um, famous uh, speech, Blood and Iron, the Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. And yes, we should mention the famous phrase. Go on, t- tell us about the famous phrase. He was arguing that Germany would only be unified by blood and iron, meaning war, um, and was quite acutely aware that it would take foreign conflict to, to be able to, to, to mould this kind of German empire into one piece. And I, I chose that title because I do think it's, a, it's an idea that you see weaved kind of into this, this German narrative, certainly into the narrative of the, of the Second Reich. But, and ironically, of course, the German empire starts in, in blood and iron and ends in it as well when, when its downfall is caused by the First World War. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was good to chat to you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms. But anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars. And then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.